0: We are in a new series uh, called Christianity for People Who Aren't Christians. We started this last week. And uh, if you uh, didn't receive your book last week, but got on the, uh, on the what is that, wait list, I guess, uh, the wait list, your book is available at the Welcome Counter. Uh, if you are here this week and would like to get a hold of one of these, we have some extras there as well for you to pick up. These are at no charge to you. They've already been taken care of. And uh, we're going to just, before we jump right in, kind of what we're doing through this series is giving you the opportunity as we answer some questions uh, that really a lot of people are asking. Uh, We may not be asking these questions in the church, but I still think we have them. Uh, But when you go into your world, into your life circle, and you go to work, and you go uh, to to your kid's school, or your neighborhood, or you go to uh, hang out and play golf with people. like These are questions that people who aren't Christians have. And our goal for this series is to really equip you to be able to go into your life circle and be able to answer some of those questions. As well as there may be some who are here who have these questions, you just have maybe not felt super comfortable asking them. And so we're going to try to answer some questions for you. Uh, through this series, we are giving you the opportunity to email me with questions as it pertains to the topic of that day. Uh, last week, uh, we talked about God, and I uh, got a couple questions, and so I, as promised, I said that I would answer them. Uh, the first is, uh, came from someone who said, I just don't know how I could be forgiven for my sins. What about the really bad ones? I don't think so. Um, I'm going to actually dive deeper into this uh, in in a couple of weeks, but the simple answer to this question is, you uh, you can be forgiven even the really bad ones. Uh, and, and I know that sounds super simplistic, but I'll just give you an example because oftentimes what happens is we, uh, in our mindset, we have a mindset of, or a scale, if you will, of what are the really bad sins and then what are the kind of not so bad sins. There's the really bad sins and then there's like, well, I just, you know, cheated on an exam or I lied about something. It's like, well, that's not that bad compared to this, right? And, and so what happens is we put this comparison uh, in regard to our sin and, and it's sh- that's a super slippery slope really really dangerous and I'll give you an example of what one might consider a really bad sin all right so imagine if you will uh, a woman having uh, an adulterous affair okay so she's sleeping with a married man and uh, some religious some some religious leaders go in And bust into the room in the middle of the adulterous act and drag the woman, not the man by by the way, the woman out, interestingly, out into the street, throw her into the dirt under the dirt road, and and begin to judge her for her sin that she's committed. Now, adultery seems like a pretty bad sin, right? And by the way, when they dragged her out there, she most likely would have been naked, thrown out into the middle of the street. And Jesus has a conversation and deals with the religious people, but at at the point at which they all get convicted and leave, uh, Jesus looks at this woman who's committed adultery and says to her, where are your accusers? And her response was, they've all gone. And he says, then neither do I accuse you. And so he also goes on to say, now go and sin no more. So That seems like a pretty bad sin, and yet Jesus' response is one of grace and compassion and love. And so I just want to encourage you, if, if that's your question, that no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, God's grace is sufficient for your life. So the second question is uh, for a person like uh, myself who wants to believe in my heart that God is there and good and supports me, but just doesn't actually feel that belief. How do you get that unshakable knowing that God is real and has your back no matter what? I think that is a powerful quality that true believing Christians have, and I would like that too. And uh, this person already heard my response for service and uh, and thank, thank me for the response, but I, I want for all of our benefits for you to just hear that anytime somebody is seeking God like this, scripture talks about continue to seek, ask and the door will be open to you, seek and you will find him that that there is a level of um, Of faith that comes out of this, but there's also this, uh, I don't even know how to explain it other than this peace that that surpasses all understanding, Scripture says. Uh, This is how you know whether or not God's got your back, that when you're going through a really difficult situation, think about one of those times in your life that was super difficult, and yet you were at peace. Because you know that God's in control of your life, and and you can walk in the safety and the security of knowing that He's in control of your life. Now I know that there's a level of this where it's just you're going to ha- you're going to have to step out in faith and trust Him in that. Um, but man, I just I know that. Uh, my, my security and my strength in my relationship with God comes when I, uh, and I can be assured of that when I know that when I shouldn't have peace, peace exists. All right, we're going to jump into uh, today's message. Uh, there was a Forbes website had a uh, article on the website back in 2019 that was titled The Top 10 Earning Dead Celebrities of 2019. And on the list were names like Dr. Seuss and Marilyn Monroe and Whitney Houston and Prince and John Lennon, all all people whose estates continue to earn income after their death. But then they had the list of the top five uh, earning dead people uh, in in the world. And and so here they are, Um, beginning with Bob Marley, number five, who died of cancer in 1981. Had a, nearly a billion streaming spins in the U.S. alone. There's also House of Marley products—headphones, speakers, turntables—all adding up to about 20 million dollars in, uh, in. That would have been in 2018. Uh, at number four is golf legend Arnold Palmer, who died in 2016 of heart disease, but brought in 30 million. Uh, thanks to MasterCard, Rolex, all of that. Thanks to capitalism. Um, so uh, number three is Charles Schultz, the creator of Snoopy and the rest of the Peanuts gang. He died in 2000 of cancer, but reruns of the strip still show up in the newspapers. People, who's reading the newspaper these days? Who gets a newspaper at their house? Just curious. Yeah, all right. Nice. Well done. Well done. Way to stick with it. Um, <laughs> All of that adds up to uh, about 38 million, uh, just edging out Schultz to earn uh, out to earn the number two spot is Elvis Presley, died in 1977 of a heart attack. Though pilgrimage to Graceland and sales of music, movies, licensing, all of that uh, brought his estate in 39 million dollars in, and then coming in at number one was Michael Jackson. Who died in 2009 of an overdose? Super sad story, just sad life. King of Pop streaming surged from 1.8 billion to over 2 billion, bringing in uh, with contracts with Las Vegas and different places 60 million dollars after he's dead. It's amazing how people who are long gone can have influence in our culture and can engage new generations, can be relevant still. But those names, no matter how much money that they will continue to earn, those names are nothing compared to the most influential life that has ever lived. Few would argue that there is anyone who has been more influential in the world than the man Jesus You've never seen that influence coming. He was born in a small town. In fact, the obscure village in which he he lived had a little bit of a questionable reputation. He was the child of a peasant woman. He didn't go to high school or college, never visited a large city. In fact, he never really went more than 200 miles away from the place that he was born. He never wrote a book never held public office. He was about 33 or so when the tide of public opinion turned on him and even his closest friends abandoned him. He was turned over to his enemies. He was nailed to a cross between two criminals. He was, While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only bit of possession that he had, his clothes, and he... After he died, he, he laid in a borrowed grave that, that was given to him through the pity of an acquaintance. Yet today, he is arguably the central figure of the entire human race. His life marks our concept of time. Time. We, are, we consider 2021 to be 2021 A.D., Latin for Anna Domini, the year of our Lord. Anything before that is called BC, meaning before Christ. And if you don't want to use that, if you, don't, if you want to be a little bit more politically correct, now uh, I think they are using the language, the common era. And so, uh, b- before the common era BCE, it's still, by the way, uh, it's marked by the life of Jesus. So, so, whether you call it the common era or you call it, you know, or before Christ, it's marked by the death of Jesus, So, that brings some questions for us about who Jesus is. I want to talk about the history of Jesus. What is the history of Jesus? There's no doubt that he lived. Like, nobody really questions that. No scholar, no matter where they stand on Christianity itself, denies that the man Jesus, the one that the Bible talks about, existed in time, in history. You find him listed in the writings of Thallus, who was a first century Greek writer. Pliny, the younger, a lawyer and an author of ancient Rome. Uh, The Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, as well as the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Now, The most detailed record, of course, is found in the Bible. It's found in the Gospels that are a biographical account written by men, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who were eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. More than a few historians have noted that Jesus is the most documented life in all of ancient history. So we know he existed. We also know a few other things for certain. We know that his teaching was of such, such compelling nature that to this day, it's part of our cultural ethos. Like it's, it's, it's ingrained, it's part of our DNA. And, and I would argue that maybe it feels a little bit like that is getting a little diluted these days. Uh, but the reality is, is the life of Jesus and his teachings have actually helped shape our culture. We also know that uh, miracles were attributed to him. Whether you buy into the possibility of miracles or not, there were people who witnessed miracles taking place and said that Jesus did them. There are sayings and phrases that are a part of our cultural context. Things like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, or stories like the prodigal son that Jesus shared, that that those are so widely known even outside the church, We know that after a public ministry, he was sentenced to death by two different legal processes, a Jewish process and a Roman process. We know that on the third day after his execution, there was an empty tomb. No one denies that. A stone was rolled away, body gone. Even the Roman guards who were guarding the tomb have owned this. And we know that his followers were running around the landscape all around the countryside telling people that he had risen. They had seen him. They had talked to him. They had touched him. And it wasn't just one disciple. It was all of the disciples. And there's even records accounting for hundreds of people seeing Jesus, the risen Jesus, at the same time. After the first Easter, the Jewish, uh, the Jesus movement exploded. A hundred years after the resurrection of Jesus, there were Around 25,000 followers, 210 later, years later, in AD 310, there were 20 million. And today there are billions, and it's the world's largest religious faith. So it's no wonder that when it comes to Jesus, we've got questions. This is an amazing individual. So let's start with maybe the most important question. What did Jesus look like? That's the burning question we all have, isn't it? Do we know what he looks like? And the answer to that is, of course, yes and no. First, the no part. The Bible never says that Jesus was a white 6'3", blonde hair, blue eyed, chiseled with good looks. In case there's any concern about this. But here's the yes part. We do know for a fact that he wasn't white, wasn't 6'3", didn't have blue eyes and blonde hair and was not chiseled with good looks. We know this. It would have been nice to have somebody who I could relate to, but... There's not a single historical reference to the physical appearance of Jesus and nothing in the Bible that describes his look. What we do know is this, that he was a Mediterranean Jew, therefore his skin would have had all of darkness uh, that you find in that region even to this day. This also means, and I know this is going to come as a shock, he didn't speak English. (laughs) Not even King James English. He never uttered the words thee or thou. And to be honest with you, I'm super grateful for that. His native tongue was Aramaic. He would have been schooled as a boy in Hebrew and probably Greek, which would have been the common language for business and commerce, but when it comes to just walking down the road with your family, Aramaic was the language of choice. Being a Mediterranean Jew also means that he wasn't overly tall, probably well under six feet, so it's probably more that Paul would be able, uh, Pastor Paul would be able to relate to Jesus. uh, According to the the ancient prophecy surrounding the coming Messiah, that wasn't very nice, but it's true, but it wasn't very nice. According to the ancient prophecy surrounding the coming of of the Messiah, uh, Christians believe uh, that Jesus really wasn't physically impressive at all. Uh, In fact, in Isaiah chapter 53, just imagine for a second, somebody is describing you. This is, what he, this is what Isaiah 53, 2 says. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Like, I'm not interested. Like, you're, yeah. So the idea that Jesus was tall, dark, and handsome is only accurate on the dark part. Right? He had dark skin. The earliest drawing that was ever made of him, at least the earliest that is still in existence, dates to the 5th century. And the original hangs in uh, a Christian tr- uh, structure uh, called St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai Desert, but it's called, and I'm going to mess this up, Christ, uh, uh, Christ Pant- Pantocrator, uh, which is translated Christ Almighty. We have a picture of that. It's the classic picture of Jesus, uh, this dominated Christianity. It comes to be, uh, it's now displayed in a lot of different churches to this day. Um, but while ancient, we don't really know if this is what Jesus looked like. There was some forensic anthropologists who decided that they they discovered, uh, they uncovered some bones in the Mediterranean region, and based upon that, they decided to sketch out what a uh, Mediterranean uh, Jewish man would look like, and so uh, they put together a picture, and really this image isn't all that flattering, uh, but that is the picture in which they kind of came up with. We don't know. We don't necessarily believe that's 100% accurate. It's just based upon the information that they had. But if you go all the way back to the earliest possible image that we have, and listen when I tell you this, I am not saying that this is true. I'm just telling you that there are people who believe that this is true, but this is a highly debated uh, fact in terms of authenticity, and that, that is the famed uh, Shroud of Turin. It's thought by some to be the shroud that the body of Jesus was wrapped in following his crucifixion and that it miraculously carries his image to this day. But again, that's highly debatable about the authenticity of that. So we don't know what he actually looked like beyond being uh, short, uh, dark-skinned, and no chance of winning any sort of Sexiest Man Alive uh, contest. So we know that. So what did Jesus say about himself then? Here's what we do know about him. It's uh, the most important thing to know about him. And we know who he said he was. You, you could imagine that as Jesus was walking this earth and uh, around him was miracles that were taking place, that there had to be this, this electric uh, you know, energy that was around Jesus, that when he's uh, feeding the masses, the, the feedings of thousands of people, when he's healing people of all kinds of diseases, putting mud in people's eyes and seeing people healed of leprosy and uh, even people being raised from the dead, that there was just this uh, this electric energy that was coming from Jesus. And the people then had the same question as people now do. Who is this guy? And so they asked him. They, they wanted to know who he thinks he is. And so let me read one of these those recorded declarations. And it was very direct from John chapter 8. The Jews said to Jesus, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? And Jesus says, I'm not demon-possessed. But I tell you the truth, if a man keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaim, now we know that you are definitely demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died. And so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? And Jesus replied, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. They said to him again, you're not yet 50 years old. And Jesus and the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, at that statement, they picked up stones and were ready to kill him. Who did Jesus say he was? And this is, really, this is extremely important for us. He refers to himself as I am. Now, he's either got really bad grammar or he's trying to communicate something really significant to us. The background of I Am is found in one of the most famous stories of the Bible, the story of Moses before the burning bush. And uh, the entire story of Moses is really amazing. It's why uh, when a movie is ever made about anything to do with the Bible, definitely about Moses, definitely about Jesus. And you've got Moses who was uh, born and to save his life was put into like this little crib type boat thing and put on the Nile River and Pharaoh's daughter, uh, the, the leader of the land, pulls him up out of the water and raises him as a prince and then he gets exiled because he kills a, an, an Egyptian because he was abusing a Hebrew person and, and so he gets shunned out and that, that doesn't even get into the plagues or the parting of the Red Sea or the Ten Commandments or any of that. So it's an amazing story. Well, one of the most amazing parts of the story is God himself was speaking to Moses, telling him, I want you to go to the highest authority in the land, right? I want you to go to the power it bees, and I want you to demand that he release all of his slaves. Now, Moses understandably had some angst about this decision. He wanted to be able to have a little credibility, and so he asked God to give him his name the very name of God, so that he could go and say to the people exactly who it was that was sending him. And here's the answer that God gave to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say. I am has sent me to you. That's Exodus chapter 3. That phrase I am is considered the most holy word in existence because it is the very name of God. It was considered so holy that Jews wouldn't even completely write it out. They would leave letters out of it because they they couldn't even pen the name. They they would use four consonants, Y, H, W, H, and they would leave out all of the vowels. Scholars used to think that it uh, was pronounced Jehovah, but we now know that the closest that we can uh, make of the actual name in light of the missing vowels is Yahweh. God said, my name is Yahweh, I am. Now, think back to what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders who won't even pen the name Yahweh. Think about what he's saying to them. He's saying to them, I am the Son of God, I I am. Before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus claimed the name of the living God for himself He says, you want to know who I am? I am. And the people listening understood exactly what he was saying, and it's why they were going to stone him for nothing less than blasphemy. Here was a mere man claiming to be God himself, but this mere man made that claim repeatedly over and over and over again. Let me give you some examples of it. John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Mark chapter 14, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. John chapter 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus is claiming to be God. Now let's talk about that for a second because that raises some other questions. Let's talk about some of the the father-son language. Why did he pray to God if he is God? Maybe you've asked that question, you've thought about it, and you're like, oh, so, you know, that's above my pay grade. But, you, but you've had the question, you're like, he's in the garden and he's praying to God, but he is God. Why does he have to pray to God if he is God? It doesn't make sense. First, it helps to be very clear what it is that Jesus was claiming. He claimed to be God, but it, he always claimed to be God the Son. The second person of the Trinity. Very, very important. We just got out of a series on the Trinity. So I'm not going to go into that. But if you miss that series, if you go to the first week of that series, there's a a much deeper explanation of the Trinity, of what a triune God, why the Trinity, all of those things. So I'm not going to go into that. But I do know this. The Trinity is a mind-boggling concept. Right? And hopefully it doesn't doesn't distract you or disturb you because there should be some mind-boggling concepts about God, right? We as I said in the series, we don't want a God that fits within our intellectual abilities. He ought to be bigger than that. But the Trinity at its heart, if you were to sum it up, is really about community. The perfect relationship between the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And this has enormous ramifications on us as Christ followers. Listen to how Ben Curtis and John Eldridge describe it. It's such a beautiful picture. Think of your best moments of love or friendship or creative partnership. The best time with family or friends around the dinner table. Your richest conversations. The acts of simple kindness that sometimes seem like the only things that make life worth living. Like the shimmer of sunlight on a lake, these are reflections of the love that flows among the Trinity. We long for intimacy because we are made in the image of perfect intimacy. This is how 13th century theologian Meister Eckhart wrote wrote it. He says, we were created out of the laughter of the Trinity. (laughs) This is such a beautiful picture. So in Jesus, we have a person who walked the earth, claim to be God, but the second person of the Trinity. No other major religions have ever made that claim. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius. Like, no one ever made the claim to be God in human form. So what do we do with that? What What do we do with this man who we know walked this earth what do we do with the fact that he claims to be God? Well, there's really only four options, and one of them's not much of an option. First, you can conclude that Jesus was stark raving mad. That he was a lunatic. That maybe he did think he was God, but he was sick psychologically, that that there was a disconnect in his brain. The problem is, is that most cases of uh, uh, severe psychological disorder, there's history, there's a background to that. There's things and and symptoms and signs that we see that lead, that that lend itself to a history of mental illness. And nothing in the historical record of Jesus exhibits any, uh, not even a single manifestation of mental illness. There's no inability to relate to the real world or inadequacy in personal relationships. He didn't have any problem communicating uh, or have any sort of deficiencies in verbal skills that, th- that, didn't, that didn't exist. In fact, there's a psychologist, his na- or a psychiatrist named uh, J.T. Fisher, They concluded that if you were to survey all of the psychological data that his discipline has to offer. So he he offers like the the psychological disciplines. If you were to boil it down to one essential and perfect prescription for mental health. This is what J.T. Fisher says. It would be the Sermon on the Mount. That if you, going to, if you were going to prescribe mental health for someone, follow the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous single message Jesus ever proclaimed. So that doesn't come from somebody who's sick psychologically. The second choice that you have is to say he was just a liar. That Jesus said he was God, but obviously he knew that he wasn't. But this would be saying that the man whose teachings have really shaped the standard for integrity and honesty throughout our cultural context and the civilized world is now a pathological premeditated liar. Even more important to remember is that Jesus was arrested. He was mocked. He was beaten to a pulp horrifically all prior to the execution and he did all of those things willfully. Jesus was offered a full pardon by the Roman governor Pilate if he would simply just deny his claim to be God. And if a con man could stop a nail from being driven into the flesh of his wrist just by telling the truth, don't you think he would do it? People who are playing the system for personal gain tend to change their game when it stops paying off. They keep up the lie until the deception costs them more than what they are gaining from the deception. But Jesus endured it all. He never once denied his claim to be God, even though he had plenty of opportunity to do so. Not many people want to say that Jesus was a lunatic. (laughs) There's just something uh, inherent in us that we're like, "Ah, I'm not going to say that. We don't want to say Jesus was a lunatic, that he was sick psychologically. We also don't really want to say that Jesus was a liar. There's something about that that doesn't just feel quite right. But that leads me to the third option where this one a lot of people are willing to say is that Jesus was a good man, maybe even a prophet from God, but that's all. See, they don't want to say he was a lunatic. They don't want to say he was a liar, but... But they also don't want to say that he was God in the form of man. And so they rest in this idea that maybe he was just a man and maybe he was a prophet. But there's a problem with this option as well. C.S. Lewis once wrote about this idea. Lewis is a brilliant intellectual man. He Went from a place of atheism, where he didn't believe in God at all, to Christianity, and in reflecting on this idea of Jesus being a good man, Lewis kind of just tells it how it is, and he exposes how intellectually dishonest this really is. This is what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of, uh, of, of saying that you, you're a poached egg or else you would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool uh, or you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Lewis is right. Here we have a man who walked the earth claiming to be God in human form. That's not neutral. (laughs) That's not neutral. You could say that Jesus was insane, uh, that the man who was in the minds of many given the world's greatest picture of sanity was in fact stark raving mad. You, You can say that Jesus was a liar, that the man who was... Teaching the and, and his teachings brought about the standard of integrity and the standard of honesty to our uh, to our culture that he was just a pathological liar. You can say those things, or the third option is you can fall at his feet and call him Lord, which of course is the last of the four options. But this is what you can't do. You cannot say he was just a good man. It doesn't work because of what he said about his own identity. He is either Lord. He's a liar or he's a lunatic. But how can we know for sure? How how do we know? That's what we want to know. We want to know for sure that he is. If I told you that I was God in human form, that I came to this earth to be the savior for all, to redeem his kingdom, you, after you got done laughing to death, would pick yourself up and say, okay, buddy, prove it. Prove it. And that's a, legitimate, that's a legitimate statement. Prove it that you are. See, and that, that's what they did to Jesus as well. They, they wanted him to prove it. And rumor had it that he actually did prove it through miracles, right? Through the, from walking on water to raising the dead. Jesus silenced a lot of his critics just through the miraculous. But that really wasn't the specific proof for his claims No, specifically, he invited anyone and everyone to judge him by one particular miracle. Christians believe that he passed the ultimate litmus test, and honestly, the entire world still talks about it every spring. We talk about this, and that his big proof is coming back to life after death. It's what he would call the Jonah test or the Jonah sign, which is patterned after Jonah being in the belly of a great fish for three days, right? And then emerging after that. He says, I'm going to die. Jesus says, I'm going to die. But then in three days, I'm going to come back to life. I'll give you that sign so that you will know that what I've told you is true. I am who I've said I am. And you'll have no doubts if you choose to believe he told people all along the way what he was about to do and that it was going to be the proof, the, the definitive validation or proof that everyone would know that he was who he said he was. I'll give you just a couple different examples that we find in the gospel accounts. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, One day some teachers of religious law and Pharisees came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to show us a miraculous sign to prove your authority. But Jesus replied, The only sign I will give is the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Here's another. Some Pharisees and Sadducees from Matthew chapter 16 were on him again. This is the message paraphrase, so it sounds a little bit different. Pressing him to prove himself to them, he told them, you have a saying that goes, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? The sign you will get is the Jonah sign. And then one more in Luke chapter 18 Taking the 12 disciples aside, Jesus said, listen, we're going to go up to Jerusalem where all the predictions of the prophets concerning the Son of Man will come true. He'll be handed over to the Romans. He will be mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon. They will flog him with a whip and kill him. But on the third day, he will rise again. Over and over and over again, Jesus made it clear that the one sign you could test him by was whether or not he would come back from the dead. And because of that, Whether Jesus came back from the dead, rose after three days, is everything. It is everything to us. The the Bible says that it's everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is just smoke and mirrors. This is just a big farce. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. Not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ. Sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. Then he goes on and he says, but the truth is, is that Christ has been raised up. So what happens when you investigate and look at the resurrection of Jesus? I mean, when you really apply yourself intellectually to determine whether or not it actually happened. One of the more fascinating accounts uh, of this actually taking place is by a guy named J. Warner Wallace. He's a decorated police uh, and homicide investigator. And he trained with the Los Angeles Police Department, but then he went to Torrance, and while he was at Torrance, he worked on the SWAT team and, uh, and did a lot of gang detail, investigated robberies and homicides, and later he became uh, a founding member of the department's Cold Case Homicide Unit. He was assigned to, uh, to figure out and investigate murders that nobody else had been able to crack. His skepticism served him well. He once said as a cop, if you believe everything people will tell tell you, then you'd never arrest anyone. So for him, facts had to be solid. Witnesses had to be credible. Evidence must be persuasive. Uh, Alibis had to be dismantled. And he's really, really good What he does, so much so that uh, Court TV, NBC, Dateline, uh, all of these news organizations would reach out to him to give his expertise when it came to things that they were uh, investigating about killers who had, they thought, gotten away with murder. Here's a snippet of just kind of the initial description of Detective Wallace. Go ahead and take a look at this. There's no statute of limitations on murder, and the ones that are unsolved go into a cold case file. In Torrance, California, those cases landed on the desk of Detective Jim Warner Wallace. Several cold cases that Jim solved were featured on NBC Dateline. In the end, you're trying to figure out what just happened here, are constantly entering each scene and asking, what really happened here, using the evidence available to you because these are cases that really were, were given up for lost. They, they really, nobody had any expectations of ever solving those cases. Jim started in law enforcement as a patrol officer. A second generation cop, he wore his badge proudly. He had a keen eye and sharp mind, and by his 30s, was promoted to detective. He was... All right, he spent six months painstakingly investigating and employing everything that he had mastered as a detective to determine that the resurrection never happened. He was an atheist. His wife started dabbling a little bit in Christianity and he didn't like it. And so he was dead set to disprove the very essence of what she believed in. And so he used his six months looking at things like resisting the influence of dangerous presuppositions, the importance of... abductive reasoning, respecting the nature of circumstantial evidence and the role it plays and it doesn't play, evaluating the reliability of witnesses, examining the choice and meaning of language through forensic statement analysis, determining what's important evident, uh, evidentially, uh, re- establishing reliability by tracing the evidence, getting comfortable with conclusions, distinguishing between possible alternatives and reasonable alternatives. He looked at every possible alternative there was to the actual resurrection, that the disciples stole the body, that the Jewish or Roman authorities stole the body, that on the first Easter morning people just got the wrong tomb, like they ran, they forgot where they buried Jesus and they just went to the wrong tomb. He even dug into whether or not Jesus actually died on the cross. And at the end of the investigation, this cold case specialist reached his conclusion that Christianity is true beyond a reasonable doubt, that the resurrection actually happened. And today, Detective Wallace is a deeply devout Christian. This is what he had to say when he was interviewed about his faith. He knew how committed I was to looking at evidence. And I think God reached me through that evidence. It may not be how everyone hears the gospel for the first time. But for folks like me, I needed to be reached this way. So I'm only a Christian today because it's true. It's interesting how God reaches people differently. Uh, I was talking to someone earlier uh, in between services and I was reminded of someone who, uh, and we hear stories about this where uh, God shows up in dreams and visions Uh, That that just in a supernatural way, that even with the most um, intellectual, smart brain that we have, that sometimes God has to reach in, and in this case, with Detective Wallace, with the evidence. You might be thinking, well, I get it, but dead people don't rise. And you're right, they don't. We know that now they knew that then, but that's the point. It's what startled N.T. Wright, who, caught, who taught both at Cambridge and Oxford, in his massive 800 plus academic work on the history surrounding the resurrection, he writes that no one would have ever have thought up the resurrection because nobody believes such a thing. Nowhere in paganism, nowhere in Judaism, nowhere in the worldview or philosophy did anyone ever conceive, posit, contemplate, or even suggest that such a thing could have ever taken place. And this was Wright's conclusion. He says, the early Christian did not invent the empty tomb and the meetings or sightings of the risen Jesus in order to explain a faith they already had. They developed that faith because of what they saw, because of what they experienced, because what they didn't think was going to happen or could happen, did. Now, what you do with that information is your choice. You have to make a decision as to whether or not with presented with the information and presented with the facts. You have to make a decision as to whether or not I'm going to believe this. There is a faith element to our Christianity and you have to decide, am I going to believe it? But make no mistake, this is what Christianity rests on. This is the basis on which you will either reject it or you'll accept it. And specifically, who Jesus said he was and what he did. There's all kinds of false teaching and poor teaching that exists out there that says you can be indifferent when it comes to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And I'm just going to tell you this morning that that is simply not true. We don't get to be indifferent in this. You've got to answer the question, was Jesus who he said he was? You can't shrug your shoulders at it. You can't just leave, leave it lying there and say, well, it doesn't really matter. It matters. I'll leave you with this challenge the challenge is that you cannot be neutral. You can reject it. You can be in the process of careful evaluation as you weigh the evidence. You obviously can accept it, but you can't just shrug your shoulders and walk away indifferent. You can't be neutral on this. There would be a lot of things about Jesus, but indifferent isn't one of them. Because if he is who he says he is, all bets are off. If he is who he says he is and you haven't believed that and now you do, your world just got rocked. (laughs) You just came to a place of saying, okay, this is going to change things. Just don't shrug your shoulders at it. Don't just set it off to the side. You have a choice to make and you don't have to make that choice today. But I hope that you do. Let's pray.